Hello and welcome back to the Legal Frontiers podcast from the School of Transnational Law at Peking University, uh, the podcast which brings together researchers and practitioners to discuss the intersection of law and the transnational challenges of our time. Uh, my name is Stephen Minas. I'm a member of the faculty at the School of Transnational Law, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this first episode for 2021. I'm joined today by Peter Quayle. Uh, Peter is a public international lawyer and legal manager specializing in the law governance and jurisdictional immunities of international organizations. Uh, Peter is currently a visiting fellow at the Lauterpacht Center for International Law at the University of Cambridge and visiting professor of international organizations law at Peking University Law School. Uh, Peter was previously chief counsel and uh, had established the corporate law function at the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and was previously with the European Bank on Reconstruction Development and the US uh, Department of Justice. Uh, Peter is uh, joining us today in an entirely uh, personal capacity. And uh, Peter, it's, it's a delight to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think it's fair to say, Peter, that you've had a relatively unique experience in recent years of being part of the startup of a new multilateral uh, development bank, a development bank about which much has been written and, uh, and said in recent years, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, so perhaps I could just ask you to begin, what is the AIIB and how did it begin? So uh, the... AIIB is a multilateral development bank. What that means, of course, is that it's an international organization uh, constituted by sovereign states and, and attributed an independent international legal personality and a mandate. And in this respect, the AIIB is part of the existing family of multilateral development banks. Um, the purpose of which is to finance projects in uh, the territories of its members to alleviate poverty, to improve connectivity, um, and generally sort of better the uh, better the economic and social uh, outcomes um, of uh, the peoples of the world. This idea is not new, of course, um, and it was first uh, thought up. Uh, around the negotiating tables of Bretton Woods uh, in uh, New England, in the United States, in the final uh, years of the Second World War. And of course, um, from that emerged the World Bank, uh, or to give it its formal title, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And as time passed, the success of this model, I think, became apparent, uh, nothing succeeds like success. And as time passed, uh, it was felt that uh, this model could be replicated, but not again at the global scale of the IMF and the World Bank, but at a regional scale. So you mentioned one of my past employers, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, established in the aftermath of the Cold War uh, in 1991. Uh, to invest in the former Soviet Union and adjacent uh, regions. So bringing that story all the way um, up to 
the 21st century, um, the AIIB emerged out of a general uh, academic and policy environment, which had identified infrastructure gaps uh, in uh, Asia, which were retarding the economic and social development of the region. This idea was apparent, but it was seized upon by the leadership of China and became associated with, became drawn into the orbit uh, of the One Belt, One Road initiative of uh, President Xi Jinping, leading then to the establishment of the AIIB just at the end of 2015 and in the first few weeks of uh, 2016. Yes, and as you say, the AIIB is coming after decades of experience with the MDB form. Um, how did the AIIB try to do things differently from the beginning? Uh, what was distinctive about this organization? And how, on the other hand, did it try to retain features of its, its predecessors? I think the way you've artfully framed that question actually sort of points, in a sense, to its answer. Clearly, there is a balance to be struck. The format of multilateral development banking is uh, tried and tested. Uh, and most important, uh, it is trusted by member states. So if you are establishing a new multilateral development bank, you obviously want to retain uh, the features of an institution which over the passage of Ceylon has gained the trust and confidence of member states. Uh, and this will sort of bring them in. But I think with the establishment of any new multilateral organization, there has to be an associated implication that there is a gap in the, uh, the current environment um, of international organizations that this new institution uh, will fill. And that certainly was the impulse um, behind the AIIB. It would have, unlike existing MDBs, a targeted focus uh, on infrastructure and connectivity and related um, productive sectors. So this begins to be a distinguishing feature from the very holistic uh, poverty alleviation goals of the existing Asian Development Bank, let's say, or the World Bank uh, itself. For the first time, however, the AIIB represents an institution which is majority owned by members who are likely to draw upon its resources. And this, this is new. And one may say that this then represents some sort of uh, critique of the historic development uh, narrative uh, driven from the global north. It is the first MDB to be headquartered in Beijing. It has drawn in a wide uh, membership, wider than uh, existing regional MDBs in terms of reaching north now of 100 members, uh, both throughout Asia, but also throughout the, the other uh, continents um, as well. So I think that gives you a sort of flavor of the kind of the push and pull um, of a model which is still proving its worth and its utility more than 70 plus years since it was first envisaged. But 
the impulse to tune up a new uh, MDB with a sharper focus, with perhaps a, a, a sort of shift in considerations. Now, as you mentioned, the AIIB is headquartered in Beijing, and this makes it one of very few international organizations which are headquartered in Beijing or, or indeed in mainland China, although there are some others. Um, so I did want to ask you, what was the practical experience of working for what is now, as you've said, a very broad-based international organization in terms of membership in Beijing? It's a, a, a large question, and I, I will try not to uh, provide an over-expansive uh, answer. You remind me, I, as you mentioned in your introduction, I'm a visiting professor at uh, Peking University Law School, uh, which is in Beijing. And uh, in one of my earliest classes, I was talking about the history of multilateralism and international organizations, and I too glibly um, said that uh, the AIIB was the first international organization established in Beijing. And I paused and asked um, at that stage, were there any questions? And the student uh, raised his hand and I said, yes. And they said, um, uh, this isn't a question, this is a correction. And they, <laughs> they uh, very PKU experience. And the correction was quite rightly, that the International Bamboo and Rattan Organization, which is a scientific agricultural international organization, of particular interest, of course, to uh, its uh, Asian state membership, uh, has long been uh, based in Beijing. So the AIIB was not first. But of course, with, it was an institution, the first um, institution which was, in a sense, uh, sponsored by China, led by China, um, staffed by a great many uh, Chinese um, officials, and um, based uh, based out of Beijing. So, a lot of what we saw in the in the early years was simply dimensions of starting up a new international organization of, of scale and scaling up that you would experience anywhere. At particularly as uh, uh, an institutional and administrative lawyer, you have relations with um, your host state. You have the privileges and immunities, the international legal status of the officials who work for your organization to, to uh, implement. You have premises, headquarters, which are being developed and constructed. Um, by the headquarters state. So there's a lot of sort of trying out what is a new relationship to, to both sides. And I, you get that, you get that anywhere. I think peculiarity is about China. The AIIB at first, like any um, new institution, draws upon staff from all different backgrounds who have had many different prior employees, uh, employers, sorry. There's that sort of sense at the beginning that your new international organization is a bit of a merger. Um, and that was true at the MDB. It was an, felt like a merger between staff who had previous experience at existing MDBs, including myself, others who were coming, of course, from the private sector, financial institutions, and then staff who were coming from um, the national civil service of uh, China. And I think 
trying to merge all of that together in a in a shared internationalized culture uh, was was a challenge. There are always, I think, certain difficulties associated with establishing an international organization with a working la language, uh, an official working language, which mismatches uh, the language spoken in the neighborhood, the area of your headquarters. And this happens quite a lot. So at the AWIB, the official language is English. Um, it's specified in the, uh, the treaty basis um, of the bank. What this means, of course, if an English-speaking institution is based in Beijing, is that you begin to get problems uh, in terms of attracting staff whose spouses will face difficulties entering the Beijing workforce, uh, as well as sort of the day-to-day -day challenges of uh, of sort of living lives uh, in an environment in which you are not fluent in the language um, spoken. Having said that, of course. That is somewhat part of the excitement and glamour of working for uh, an international organization. So it's not a it's not a it's not intended to, uh, to be uh, entirely a con. It's definitely um, a mix. Indeed, and and turning to your particular role in in the early years of the AWIB, setting up the corporate law function. First of all, what what is corporate law? in the context of an MDB and what was required in those early years to set up that, that work? So corporate law in the context of international organizations um, has in the past and still is at some institutions referred to as uh, administrative and institutional law. What that means, it means essentially, it's sort of characterized by default with any international organization, the organization is possessed of a mandate. Um, there will be a specialist law associated with that mandate. So in the case of the MDB, it's obviously uh, international uh, financing and development operations. But if it was the World Trade Organization, it would be uh, international trade law or the World Health Organization, it would be international public health law. But what remains at any of those institutions, including the AWIB, are all of the questions of the interior uh, workings of the institution and the projection of its international legal personality, safeguarded, of course, by its privileges and immunities, which possess it of exemption from the law of the jurisdiction in which it's either headquartered or operated. So corporate law includes, uh, can include things like the employment law of an international law organization, which is international administrative law. It's a law derived from public international law unrelated to the employment law of China or the United Kingdom or the United States, for example. It may well include giving advice to the communications function or the IT function, the governance organs, uh, the ethics and integrity functions um, of an institution. But certainly in the first instance, the first few years of a new international organization, in large part, what occupies you is trying to 
create an internal uh, legal order. An interior legal regime derived from the forces of public international law that interact with the with the with the shell of the international organization. It's tempting to think that on day one, what you step into is a vacuum of some sort. But I obviously um, resist uh, that uh, analogy. What I think you find is a situation in which the interior uh, legal environment of uh, any international organization is filled with these invisible forces that uh, lawyers can perceive, they can recognize, um, but their non-legal colleagues and internal clients cannot. So I think part of the job uh, to begin with is to uh, realize and render visible these uh, otherwise invisible legal forces by creating a regime, a governance regime, which has strong legal foundations and is uh, conducive to the kind of rules-based working culture that you want to instill. Some scholars and practitioners have referred to a common law of international organizations. Uh, the idea is, as you say, that not everything is written down or not everything is written down within a particular organization or institution. Now, I, I guess that changes over time as more is codified in terms of internal mm. rules, etc. But on day one, uh, as, as you say, you have the treaty, uh, you have a number of other documents perhaps, but uh, the, uh, the work is very much before the institutional lawyer. That's right. There's a sort of sensation um, like you see in a sort of an old Bugs Bunny cartoon of trying to uh, lay the railway tracks in front of you as, as the train is sort of um, riding over the chest-laid the, the tracks. And that sort of speaks to, yes, your um, common law is great. And I wouldn't, all common law is great. Um, and I wouldn't, I'm not provoked by the idea that uh, there is a common law of international organizations derived from general international law as it applies to international organizations. You know, the problem with uh, the common law is that um, only lawyers can see it. So um, the importance of codification, of creating governance structures, of creating decision-making instruments uh, and supervisory systems in accordance with the common law, um, I think is, is paramount because it visibilizes the law to everybody else uh, and is, I think, intrinsic to a rules-based uh, working culture. You can get around it if you have a lawyer by your elbow uh, day in, day out, sort of <laughs> nudging you and giving you advice and telling you, you know, what are the content contours of the common law. But who, you know, who, who wants to sit next to a lawyer uh, all day, every day? Without being facetious, that's not what lawyers want either. Uh, lawyers want to develop systems and instincts so that um, issues are funneled. Um, you have the, tra the train tracks along which the train runs and lawyers can give advice um, when uh, 
unusual situations occur or controversies develop or difficult choices have to be made. And in addition to that basic necessary work of developing an internal legal order, developing legal relationships with important counterparties and so forth, one of the interesting things that AWIB did was its I don't know what you called this, but I suppose it's legal outreach, uh, the publishing that you did, the, the yearbooks of international law. Where did that work fit in? Why was that something that, that you collectively decided to do? I think that it's the work of all international officials uh, working for international organizations to project the independent international legal status of the organization and to make the organization better understood. Why? Because this is then conducive um, to the efficiency and effectiveness of the organization and hence uh, the delivery of its mandate. If the institution is perpetually misunderstood by key stakeholders, then its effectiveness will be forever retarded. So I think that um, the core startup lawyers led by Gerard Sanders, the general counsel, took this to heart. We would take it to heart whatever international organization we worked for. Lawyers in particular have a way of articulating the status, the mandate, the interests of an institution, especially to other lawyers, that their non-legal colleagues perhaps uh, do not possess. And all the lawyers out there, particularly lawyers in some of Asia's key uh, legal financial hubs, they all have their clients. And it was very much um, uh, the premise that uh, reaching out to the sort of the legal demographic, uh, the legal stakeholders of the AWIB was a multiplier. One lawyer has many clients. And so if one lawyer understands the way in which the AWIB is an independent international legal uh, entity, it's unbeholden to uh, any one of its uh, members. Uh, it is not synonymous with the One Belt, One Road initiative, and so on. It's regulated by um, strict social and environmental uh, regulations and policies. To have all of this understood by a legal audience is to enable them to go off and correct misapprehensions and uh, explain uh, the work of the bank in settings where no AWIB official would, would ever find themselves present. So we thought that stepping into the, the, the information gap about a new institution and developing the uh, AWIB's reputation for accessibility, uh, an intellectual candor, um, and to represent the bank as a crossroads for uh, academics and practicing lawyers and other stakeholders interested in these issues, uh, we thought uh, rebounded to the great advantage of the AIB. It does raise the interesting thought about how much the information space has changed for international organizations. If we go all the way back 
to the reparation advisory opinion uh, to now in, in terms of those, uh, I wouldn't say laymen but, or, or lay people, but those people who are having some role but not experts, they don't have to care about international organizations in their day job, but nevertheless, they come into contact with them and what is this? And, and uh, the idea of lawyers as, as influencers and bearers of messages uh, is, is a naturally flattering one, but it's also an interesting uh, insight into the practical work of getting a message out there in the 21st century. Yes, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, the larger international organizations, if you go back to their inception in the 1940s, the 1950s, through to now, in fact, they have physical information centers, bureaus at street level of their headquarters where um, the general public can uh, come through the doors and find information and dig out reports and ask questions. Well, this, of course, used to be the only way, perhaps the exception of some sort of academic uh, style reports to find out about the activities in a systemic way about international organizations. All that's changed. Uh, there's a lot more transparency. All international organizations now possess what are known as public information policies. These are legalistic, quasi-legal regimes for the publishing of the information that they generate uh, and they keep. The impulse is to be proactive and to be uh, transparent as conducive to um, the, the reputation and effectiveness of that organization. But yes, Stephen, I think it goes back again to this idea, this, um, I don't want to sort of overwork the, the Bugs Bunny metaphor, but it's about putting the train track down in front of you. And that's just as important in terms of constructing a internal rules-based environment as it is to contributing to a discourse and a perception about the external rules-based multilateral order. Uh, I, think, I think this all goes to the extent to which it's terribly easy for international organizations to be misunderstood and misperceived. And there's no point um, or there, there, there can be no praise for an international organization that just sort of sits back and is content to uh, let this sort of, um, this kind of, this, let's say faulty uh, or incomplete reputation fester. Um, it has articulate, able officials who are ready and well able to go out and meet with constituencies and sort of enact the transparency that all international organizations um, now hold uh, up as the prime importance. Yes, and, and I suppose it's also an example of recognizing the necessity of engaging a broader range of stakeholders than just the, uh, the member states of the organization. Uh, now, Peter, if, if we could turn to your current research, because it's very much related to what we've been discussing. Um, you're currently researching and writing a book, uh, An Introduction to International Administrative Law, The Law of Employment Relations at International Organizations. Um, so perhaps I could ask you, why are you writing about this topic in particular? This is a topic which I think very much sits with the persistent misunderstandings and misperceptions of international organizations that in my other work and initiatives I have attempted to address. As things stand, there is no single slim 
accessible English language, academically dependable uh, book about the employment law of international organizations. This is sometimes called international administrative law or the law of the international civil service. What that means, I think rather alarmingly, is that all of the many hundreds of thousands of international officials of international organizations lack some kind of ready reference to the law of their responsibilities, their obligations, and their rights uh, within the workplace. This seems to me to matter a great deal because there is no international organization in the world, whatever its mandate, that is uh, not instrumentalized by its staff. If you take all the staff out of the headquarters of the United Nations or the AIIB or the World Health Organization, then you have a shell with the sort of the lights running, but no one's there to do the work, to do the important work attributed to international organizations by their member states. It's also a law that goes to the efficiency and the effectiveness um, of all international organizations. It goes to the drivers of expectations in the workplace, the working culture of international organizations, and not infrequently devoid of more and better information about international administrative law. The temptation, the temptation is for an international official to uh, bring a claim uh, to uh, an administrative tribunal that adjudicates um, employment-related disputes, if only to find out what the law in fact is in their present circumstances. And that touches upon, I think, one of the, the, the in conclusion, one of the other important contexts of international administrative law, which is that it is the only forum in which uh, an international organization is routinely held uh, account, accountable uh, through uh, judicial uh, mechanisms. Yes, and I think that's one of the most consequential parts of this topic, the fact that international organizations have a jurisdictional immunity from the state courts of wherever they're based or wherever they're operating. Uh, and the question then becomes, uh, how does an international civil servant, an employee, uh, avail themselves of, of their rights under their contract and all the rest of it? Um, so this, this question of how then does an international administrative tribunal fulfill its function is at least doubly important. It's obviously important for the individuals, but it's also important for the organization, isn't it? And, and for the maintenance of the organization's independence from state law. Without um, sort of there being more explanation available, uh, my fear is that too often the jurisdictional immunity, general jurisdictional immunity possessed by international organizations, but particularly in the domain of employment disputes, an international official cannot uh, go to a local labor court uh, with their complaint about their employing organization without, without that organization showing up to assert its jurisdictional immunity. But this is not some sort of caprice um, or just some sort of 
autocratic impulse on the part of an international organization. It's derived from the way in which the treaty basis of international organizations possess its officials with a special international legal status, which exists entirely independently from the national labor law of Russia or China or the United States or France or the United Kingdom, um, let's say. And it's also synonymous with the independence and impartiality of an international organization. But of course, it's long been recognized that if you create a workplace in which there can be no legal accountability, you are likely to create a dispirited and dysfunctional workplace. So since, in fact, the League of Nations, the possessed of the first sort of permanent professional international civil service, since the League of Nations, international organizations have created as a, as a governance act by the organization, an independent uh, tribunal referred to as international administrative tribunals, um, staffed by judges independent of the organization um, to adjudicate the employment disputes brought by staff uh, against the employing organization. The sort of trends and the vectors of international administrative tribunals, they pretty much sort of go through the ups and downs that you see in the more general dispute resolution sphere. There's been a trend over the last several decades to an enhanced legalism, to less, um, uh, to less informality. Uh, there's been shifts between uh, having each international organization having its own administrative tribunal as opposed to uh, several or many international organizations sharing a uh, administrative tribunal. And you've also seen in the UN system the development of a two-tier system. There's nothing particularly sort of right or wrong about all of this. There's certainly a sense of flux, which I think at times is not desirable. But generally, it's the sort of council of continual improvement, as opposed to just having these sort of static in entities, which may well have been fit to adjudicate an employment related dispute in international organization in the 1950s, say, um, different to uh, the, the 2020s now. Now, as you've just said, the position, the special status of an international civil servant is uh, derived from a number of sources, but these include the, the founding treaty of the organization. And we currently live in an interesting time in international organization where there are as always, there are many treaties without an international organization, but there are also today some international organizations without a treaty. And one of the things I've observed is that it can sometimes be a bit more difficult for those organizations that are established in some other manner uh, to achieve the equivalent uh, recognition of their international uh, legal uh, personality, their privileges and immunities, et cetera, uh, and that, that may also, well, of course it does uh, impact upon their, their staff. So what, what do you think about this question of varieties of international organization? Uh, is, this, is this something which is uh, one of the challenges of the time? I think um, 
most international organizations, lawyers like myself, tend to abhor uh, variety, partly because it's a driver of an insane amount of legal complexity. Um, and it leads to this status uncertainty and status anxiety of these entities. Yes, there has been a trend, it sort of picked up over the last several decades to establish international entities in a way different to the classical way. The classical way is to uh, call a drafting convention of interesting parties supported by a secretariat, negotiate uh, a treaty text which will be the constituent instrument of your new international organization, contain a provision about how the independence of the organization is activated. So when it goes from being a treaty to an entity, and then that then is clearly understood. Doing it other ways um, certainly happens and happens for a variety of well-intentioned reasons. It's either to make the organization feasible Whereas um, if it went down the classical route, it would, it would face impediments in national legislatures and national legal regimes, um, or it's intended to be quicker, more flexible. It may be a hybrid institution, so it's not solely owned by member states, it might be private uh, sector or international uh, uh, non-governmental organizations, involved. But coming out of it um, is you know, a sort of a, a sort of endless symposia of difficult legal questions um, or uh, and oftentimes there's there's um, there's no sort of particular legal answer, um, which is even a greater headache. I mean, um, I think it's Herschel Outerpacht who was an exponent of the idea that we have all the international law that we need. Um, and if you have these sort of hybrid or uncertain status entities, you quickly, the train tracks run out, Bugs Bunny again. Um, and you know, then, then what do you do? And I'm not above saying that lawyers should more often than, should more often than they do say that this is not a legal question or there is no legal answer, or these are the pros and cons. Um, that I can see in this unprecedented situation. But you end up having a lot of displaced and wasted effort. You've, you, you want international organizations, multilateral entities exist to, to do good in the world, not to be the generators of complex, uh, academic, uh, academically interesting legal questions. And then because of that pressure, what I think you also see is that even though, well, what you also see is essentially uh, entities which have an uncertain status or status anxiety trying to sort of move back to the classical international organization framework. And there again, you've, 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 you've created more and more work. But at the end of the day, it's for member states, sovereign states to decide the format, to decide upon treaty bases or other modalities for establishing entities, uh, international organizations, although independent from their member states um, are obviously created and can only be created by 
member states. And at the end of the day, there is no uh, there is no sort of form at company's house which you fill in to create an international organization. There is no fixed, rigid format. Um, there's a lot of similarity because lawyers love precedent uh, and so do state members, but there can also be endless uh, flexibility. Yes, and, and part of that, uh, well, that flexibility is one of the things that makes this area so interesting. Um, before we wrap up, Peter, you, you'll be teaching a course uh, on, uh, indeed, on the reform of international organisations at, uh, at Peking Law School. So will that course be touching on some of these questions? Or what's, uh, what can your students expect? So I'm very pleased to... Uh, continue my association with Peking University Law School, uh, although, as is so widely the case at the moment, this will be uh, a remotely taught short course. But yes, the idea is, in terms of always trying to come back to a classroom with fresh ideas, or at least fresh formats to explain, to better explain ideas, uh, it struck me. Uh, myself and my colleague, uh, Professor Yifeng Chen at uh, PKU, that, that this sort of impulse to reform international organizations is a persistent one. There's no, or it seems as though there is no new, newly appointed leader of an international organization who does not promise reform one sort or another. So this sort of got me thinking that maybe this kind of reforming impulse actually goes to the heart of what international organizations are and how they retain their relevance through the decades, how they go on working efficiently, renewing themselves at least, um, in very changed um, circumstances. So the course about the reform of international organizations is intended to use reform as a lens to understand the fundamentals of international organizations law, but to understand where the parameters are for what reform is possible and what reform is less than possible or very difficult or requires a treaty change, for example. So it's a course that uh, hopefully will grasp the interest of uh, students and they can, sort of, through that lens or through that approach to the subject, they can, they can sort of better understand the underlying uh, legal contours. Excellent. Well, uh, Peter, you've been very generous uh, with your time. Uh, as, as Bugs Bunny might say, that's all folks. Uh, so, so Peter Quayle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure.